All right, so we are live streaming now. Um, so we're going to go ahead and begin our study. And uh, we are studying the subject of soteriology. And what we're doing is we're looking at biblical terminology related to soteriology. Remember that soteriology is the study of salvation. It comes from two words, soter, which means savior, and logos, which means the study of or a word about something. And so what we are looking at is the study of salvation. Now this is a, this is a relatively deep dive into this subject, and I don't know how many months we've been in it now, uh, four or five months, I guess, um, and I suspect we'll be here uh, for at least another six to eight. We'll see. Um, just depends on how many rabbit trails we chase, but that's all right. Uh, but we are looking at biblical terminology, and tonight we're looking at the word faith. Now, uh, I'll be chasing down a number of scripture references uh, on this particular subject to kind of flesh it out uh, from the text so that we can understand it better and to see uh, not only how uh, faith is used in the Bible, but to uh, be able to relate it to our own walk with the Lord. I was thinking of the passage in 2 Corinthians 5 7, uh, which I have here up on the screen, which Paul says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. And the word walk there is an interesting verb. It translates the Greek verb peripateo, peripateo, and uh, it literally means to walk about. But walk here is a metaphor for basically how we live our lives. Uh, When we talk about walking, we're talking about, again, the use of the word walk there is a metaphor for basically how we live, uh, how we function from day to day. And as believers, uh, Paul says, we walk by faith. Now, uh, faith is never in nothing. Faith always has an object. And, um, and several things that we'll look at throughout this study, and I will uh, particularly highlight as we get through towards the end, and that is that, one, faith always demands an object. It always demands an object. If, uh, if Stephanie were standing on a corner and I came running up to her and I said, do you believe? Uh, she would look at me with a furrowed brow and say, believe what? Uh, because she understands, like everybody understands, that faith functions generally as a transitive verb. And it means that uh, what it means is that the word demands a direct object. Uh, two, when faith is exercised, it's exercised with a view to receiving a benefit. It is exercised with a view to receiving a benefit. And three, when faith is exercised, the object gets all the credit. The, in other words, the thing or person that is trusted gets the credit. And we'll look at that a little bit more as we move through this. Uh, but again, we walk by faith, and this has to do, again, with the function of the daily life, how we live our lives. Now, I think of Romans ten seventeen, which says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so we take in the word of God. We're looking, we're, we're, we're thinking about the acquisition of divine viewpoint, where we are taking in the scripture, and we are taking it in and taking it in, and then it becomes the platform upon which we function from day to day, because it gives us insights into realities, things that we could never know, except that God has spoken. And what he has spoken 
has been inscripturated. That is, it has been written down for our benefit. And so there are many things that we know in the Word of God, things that the Word of God reveals to us. And apart from that revelation, we're really left with a guessing game because we don't know. And I've talked about this before, but you think about Genesis 1-1 where it starts off with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so the Bible starts with that fundamental assumption, one, that God exists, uh, when it says, in the beginning, God uh, created the heavens and the earth, that he created the heavens, that is the universe, and he created the earth. And then we see the six days of creation where he's sculpting the earth, he's forming things on the earth, animal life, plant life, he's separating the light from the darkness, and then, of course, the crowning achievement then is mankind made in the image of God. And you think of in Genesis 2, uh, verses 6 and 7 and following, where God creates Adam, he forms him from the dust of the earth. And then there's Adam standing there before God, in the garden, God there is in theophonic form. He's there in, in, in some, in some uh, human form, some physical form. And you have these theophanies, these Old Testament appearances of God. You In the Old Testament, you have Christophanies, Old Testament appearances of Christ. But you have God in the garden, and there is this man that he has formed, this biological life with all of its complexity, the brain, with the 82 billion cells of the brain, and the billions and billions of cells that make up the body, And all of these molecules have come together to form the brain and the organs and the skin and the eyes and the hair and everything that is biologically what constitutes a person. And then God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, the Neshama Chaim, and he becomes, he, you can almost imagine Adam taking that first breath and he, he inhales and he takes that first breath and at that moment he becomes a living soul. And so Adam, when you think about the composition of, of what it means to be a human being. It involves, uh, uh, it involves at least two things. It involves biological life, and it also involves immaterial aspects, uh, the soul, you know, the ability to think, the mind, uh, cognition, the ability to, to think rationally. Uh, it involves volition, the ability to make choices. It involves emotion. It involves a conscience, uh, a set of standards of norms and, uh, of right and wrong, that we have uh, built into us. Now, as fallen, the conscience, as fallen creatures, the, the conscience can become seared. But nonetheless, God designed man to be this way and to be self-conscious, to be aware of himself, so, so that when he looks in the mirror, he goes, oh, yeah, that, that's me. You know, he's aware of himself, not just his environment. The reason I bring these things up is God has revealed these things to us, and so we're not left with a guessing game about how the universe came into being. We know that Psalm 19, 1 and 2 tells us that, uh, that the heavens are revealing thy glory, and day to day pours forth speech. And we look at in Romans 1, 18 and following, which talks about how God is revealed through the creation, and that he has revealed himself within mankind. Uh, you know, what is called in theology the sensus divinitatis, the sense of the divine, the intuitive knowledge that God exists. And so God is revealed through the creation. Now, if one rejects a theistic worldview, if one rejects the Christian worldview and does not operate on the basis of revelation, then what they're left with is a guessing game. 
and they try to look at the normal processes of things and then try to extrapolate back, whether that's uniformitarianism or they extrapolate from microevolution back to macroevolution, and they make certain assumptions. And the atheist operates by faith. Don't let them tell you they, they don't. They do. Uh, because they weren't there when the universe came into being, but they will tell you that we live in a closed universe. Now, the Bible teaches that we live in an open universe where God is involved in the affairs of mankind. And not just God, but we have holy angels, we have fallen angels, we have a, a kingdom of darkness, we have uh, a fallen creature, an angel by the name of, of uh, Lucifer who became Satan, who, who became Hashatan, the, the Satan, the adversary. And he is in charge of many, many uh, fallen angels known as demons, evil spirits, and wicked spirits, and they're involved in the affairs of mankind as well. Well, the Bible teaches that we live in this open universe where we have other wills at work, the will of God, the will of these uh, invisible beings called angels that are involved as well. But the atheist rejects all that, says, no, we live in a purely materialistic universe. It's a closed universe. There's no outside influence. And they argue that the universe is all that is, all that has been, all that is, and all that will be, uh, to paraphrase Carl Sagan. And so they believe that, we, that the universe, you know, the last estimate I heard was 13.8 billion years ago came into being, and it was just a big bang. And this is amazing to me because how do you get something from nothing? You know, how does nothing produce something? And then how does an impersonal universe that is purely materialistic, produce something that is personal, that has intellect and will and volition and this beautiful complexity. How do you go from something very simple to something very complex? Because when, if, if you ever study human anatomy, and I've been doing this for the last few months, especially I'm interested in the brain and the nervous system, but I've been watching all these medical videos on the function of the brain, the frontal lobe, the parietal lobe, the temporal lobe, the occipital lobe, and the, the uh, you know, how that works, you know, with regard to um, uh, somatosensory, you know, in the parietal, you know, hearing, you know, over in the, uh, t in the temporal, you know, vision back in the occipital, uh, you know, and you think about the function of the brain and the complexity. And to think that all of this is merely the matter, is merely the product of matter, motion, time, and chance, that over millions of years, that we percolated up from the goo to the zoo to you, and that we're just evolving bags of protoplasm, the accidental collection of molecules. And here we are, you know, these magnificent, glorious creatures that a purely imp uh, impersonal universe created this wonderful complexity of life. It takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a Christian. And as a Christian, as, as one who simply looks at the world, I can look at the world just like the unbeliever can look at the world, and God's revelation is revealed through the creation. I see, I see his handiwork, uh, and I'm aware of that. But then you go to the Bible, and you have special revelation. Well, well, these are things that we come to know, and we accept, and when we operate on that, we operate that on the basis of faith. So it's by faith that we come to acquire knowledge, you see, and that's what I'm getting at. Faith is not ignorant, that's what I'm getting at here. Faith is, is knowing. It is rooted in knowledge. In our case, the faith that we operate by is faith in the revelation of God and his word. It's that revelation that is the foundation upon which we operate. When I look at a person, I don't see the accidental collection of molecules. Okay, I don't see the product of matter, motion, time, and chance. I don't see evolving bags of protoplasm. I don't see an accidental being. I see somebody who is made in the image of God, a finite analog to God, a theomorph, as it were. I see somebody who may be fallen, 
but still bears the image of God, and therefore a person has intrinsic value. You remove God, you remove that image from mankind, and there is no more reason for us to exist than a rock, a fish, a bird, or even a worm on a hook. There is no reason for us to exist. And really, mankind uh, becomes a zero, if you want to get down to it, from a purely evolutionaristic worldview. Because we come from nothing significant, we're, we're, we're purely accidental beings in an accidental universe, and we go to nothing significant because when we die, we just simply cease to be. And what that means is that ultimately, mankind is just a zero. And really, there's no value to mankind. And, uh, and people who understand this... Uh, 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 philosophers who really have studied this really deeply and really thought through these things, um, they've really had to wrestle with, well, what's the purpose of mankind? And this is where uh, existentialism became very popular in the 60s and 70s by people like Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus and other existential philosophers who were trying to establish some value to mankind as to, you know, what, what's the value? What's my purpose for being here? Or am I just part of some big cosmic joke? You know, and so, you know, these people really feel these things deeply and it and it winds up resulting to a large degree in despair because what's the point? You know, uh, what's what's the point of life? And uh, and so you you really feel the tension of these worldviews at work when you really begin to think through these things. But the Bible, again, says that we walk by faith. And so to walk by faith means that we learn the word of God and we live the word of God. And by the way, it's always in that order, because you cannot live what you do not know. And learning God's word necessarily precedes living God's will. It's always in that order. And I've used the passage in Matthew 7 several times, where Jesus says in Matthew 7, 24 and 25, he says, the man who hears my words, okay, well, that means that you are taking in uh, the word of God. That is the acquisition of divine viewpoint, so you are taking it in the man who hears my words and does them. There's the application of it to life. The one who lives out that divine revelation, the one who applies it. So the man who hears my words and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And listen, when the storms of life come, because they do come, and beat against that house, and they will beat against that house, against your life, uh, it will stand because it was established on something strong. But then Jesus says, the man who hears my words and does not do them. You see, it is possible to take in divine viewpoint and yet not operate by it. And Jesus says, this is the fool who builds his house upon the sand. And when the storms come and they beat against that house, and they will, and I'm paraphrasing, of course. But he says, when they come and they beat against that house, it will come crashing down. And I think of in James 1.22, where he says, be ye doers uh, of the word and not merely hearers only. And James 4, 17, where he says, uh, he says, to him who knows the right thing to do, that is according to divine viewpoint, to him who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Is it possible to take in divine viewpoint? Is it possible to know the right thing to do and not do it? Sure it is. Sure it is. And uh, Bible, uh, people throughout the Bible have done this. Uh, Christians today do this. So it is possible but we always want to learn it and then live it. And so faith is always a two-step process. It's always that learning. We take it in. We devote ourselves to a time of study of God's Word. We take in divine viewpoint. And then when it comes time to apply it, we by faith put it into application. 
We love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. Uh, We pray for one another. We encourage one another. We build up one another. We study to show ourselves approved unto God as workmen that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You see, we live out in obedience uh, the things that are revealed to us in the word of God. And this is the walk of faith. Now, this is really what starts the Christian life. Because it's by faith that we even come to be saved, because we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's an article I just published this morning, as a matter of fact. But let me not get too far ahead of myself. Let me go ahead and jump into the notes here. Now, the word faith is used three ways in Scripture. It's used at least three ways in Scripture. Faith we see first as a noun, and this is the noun pistis. And you'll see the endings here. Uh, You'll see the root word, the P-I-S-T, but then you'll see the various endings, the is, the os, and the uo, and uh, it helps us to differentiate uh, these particular words. So we see faith as a noun. Now, a noun uh, refers generally, when we think of a noun, we think of a person, place, or thing. Uh, Now, according to Badag, which is the Bauerdanker Art and Gingrich, a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature, uh, pistis refers to, quote, that which evokes trust and faith, end quote. And that was taken from Badag, page 818. Now, the word is used with reference to God, who is himself trustworthy, Romans 3.3 3 says, What then, if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Uh, and here it's talking about uh, that which is trustworthy. And it's talking about the faithfulness of God. And the word faithfulness here translates the Greek noun pistis. It's talking about the faithfulness of God, that which evokes trust. Think of in uh, Romans 4.19-21, through 21, where it says of Abraham that without becoming weak in faith, uh, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. And by the way, he's thinking about the promise that God gave that they would have a son, uh, Isaac. And remember that Abraham was a hundred and Sarah was 90 when the promise came. Now, 90, that's uh, generally past childbearing years, right? I mean, uh, 40 might be pushing it. 50, you're, you're pretty, pretty far behind. 60, eh, I forget what the world record was. I, last time I saw, and I could be off on this, someone might have to correct me, but I think 63 uh, is the world record, at least last time I heard. Now, that's pretty staggering to think about. Uh, 70, yeah, you're past. 80, no. 90, there's really no hope. So for God to come along and say that she's going to give birth to a child, and here's Abram at 100 and she's at 90, he's thinking, okay, this has to be a miracle, baby, because, uh, you know, it's not going to happen otherwise, right? But it talks about here when he talks about the deadness of Sarah's womb, that is, uh, the inability of her womb uh, to bear a child. And yet, here you have this tension. You have this tension between human ability and the promise of God. Now, which is, which is more real? Uh, your human ability, your human experience, or the Word of God? The Word of God. And I'm here to tell you that it's one of the signs, one of the characteristics of a mature believer that the Word of God becomes more real to you than your feelings, more real to you than your circumstances, and more real than your experiences. 
And that is one of the characteristics of a mature believer. And we see Abraham here as a mature believer. And you read verse 20. I love this. It says, yet with respect to what? The promise of God. You see, Abraham has a choice to make here. He's either going to uh, look at it purely from a humanistic perspective, uh, which is our default setting in many ways, or he's going to operate by faith. Now, Abraham uh, chose the latter. Notice again verse 20. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but what? But grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. I love that. I love that. And that's a real compliment to Abraham. And he's a hero of the faith, isn't he? But I love the fact that Abraham grew strong in faith. Now, isn't isn't that revealing? Doesn't that communicate something? It says that faith can grow. Because when you think about Abraham earlier in his life, he didn't quite have that kind of faith. Now, his faith really manifested itself by the time you get to Genesis 22 and the offering up of Isaac. I mean, that's really the, uh, the, the great test. And of course, he was obedient to the Lord and he became, he was called the friend of God because of his obedience to the Lord. But he really had faith. And the writer to the Hebrews tells us that he believed that, uh, that Abraham trusted that God could even bring him back from the dead. Now, that's great faith on the part of Abraham. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And remember that we're talking about faith as an object that evokes trust. Uh, And so being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. You see, God has integrity. And when God makes a promise, God keeps his word. In fact, do you realize that it is impossible for God to lie? In fact, in Titus 1-2, it says that it is impossible for God to lie. Hebrews 6-18 says the same thing. It It says that it is impossible for God to lie. And so that means that when God promises something, we can trust God at his word. And that's what Abraham is doing here. He's simply trusting God at his word. So it has to, so pistis here, the way that the noun is used, it's used with reference to uh, God who is trustworthy. Now the word is also used of people who possess faith. Because again, we're talking about noun here. We're talking about faith as something that we have, that we hold. Matthew 9, 2, it says, And they brought to him, that is to Jesus, a paralytic lying on a bed. And it says that seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, your son, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. But here we see the use of the noun pistis, uh, where it says seeing their faith. So seeing that they had faith. Also in verse 22, But Jesus, uh, seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage, your faith has made you well. And so seeing that she had faith. Now the word uh, is also used to demonstrate that faith can be great. For example, in Matthew 15, 28, then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is, is what? Is great. And here the word great translates the Greek adjective megas. Megas, M-E-G-A-S. And we bring that over into the English, well, uh, like in the word megaphone, 
phone is the word for voice, and so you think of a megaphone, you think of a great voice, right? But here, her faith uh, is, is said to be great. Your faith is great. So, so this thinks, again, you think of Abraham who grew strong in faith. Um, over in Acts 6-5, it describes Stephen as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And the word full there translates the Greek adjective play race. Um, and so it's this idea that he had well-developed faith. He had a full faith. And again, I'd simply point this out because faith is something that grows. It's like a muscle. I mean, you can exercise it and become stronger. And faith is very much that way. Faith, by the way, can be small. You can have little faith. Over in Matthew 17, verses 19 through 20, uh, it says, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? Speaking of a demon who was possessing a person. And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, of the littleness of your faith. So a person can have little faith, and faith can be altogether absent. People can just simply not believe. Uh, and I think of in, uh, in Mark 4, verses 39 and 40, and this is Jesus when he's on the stormy sea and he calms the sea, and he's on the boat, and it says, And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. So here we have a situation where it's a, it's a storm. The waves are, are really high. They're crashing against the boat. Jesus gets up and, and speaks to the storm, and he just says, Hush, be still. And er, the wind stops, and the sea becomes calm like glass. And, uh, of course, the disciples were <laughs> a little bit shocked by this. Um, but notice uh, that Jesus said to them, and he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? And so it is possible, even for believers, because these were believers here who in this particular moment were not believing. Now, they were in fact saved because they exercised faith at a prior time and came into a relationship with God through faith in Christ. Uh, but in this particular situation, uh, they were in panic mode, and they were operating on fear and not faith, and Jesus called them on it. And he said, how is it that you have no faith? Now, interestingly enough, being a noun, because remember that uh, it, it can speak of a person, place, or thing, uh, here it is also used of Scripture itself as a body of reliable teaching. Uh, when it talks about the faith, the faith, for example, in Galatians 1.23, it says, but only they kept hearing, uh, he, this would be the Apostle Paul, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And the faith here, faith here refers to a body of teaching. We might say doctrine, that he is now preaching the doctrine that he once tried to destroy. And so again, this is uh, context always determines the meaning of a word. So here it refers to a body of reliable teaching. Now, Paul was said to preach, again, Galatians 1.23, the faith which he once tried to destroy, I have a quote here from Richard Longnecker, Longnecker uh, from his commentary, and he notes that Paul's, Paul uses pistis in Galatians in an absolute sense to mean the content of the Christian gospel, end quote, the content. And that was taken from Word Biblical Commentary, page 42, um, his commentary on Galatians, uh, volume 41. Uh, but he's correct that it does refer to the content specifically 
of the gospel itself. So again, when we think of faith, uh, we should understand it uh, in this first uh, example as a noun, uh, which can refer to people who have faith. Faith can be great, it can be small, it can be absent. People can possess faith. It can speak of somebody who is trustworthy, or it can refer to a body of teaching. Now, the most common way that we think about faith, we think of it as a verb, and that's the Greek verb pistuo, pistuo, and you see the P-I-S-T root word there. Uh, But again, we have faith as a verb, and here I'm again going to quote from Badag, which means to commit which means to consider something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust believe to trust oneself to an entity in complete confidence to believe in or to trust end quote and so you see the other words that are used here uh, when it's talking about trust i like the word confidence i think that communicates very well Now, the word is used of trust in God. So again, remember that the object of faith can vary. And it just simply means that you trust something or someone. I am am exercising faith right now in the chair that I'm sitting on. In other words, I am trusting the chair uh, that that it will do what I think it should do, what it's designed to do, and that is to hold me while I am sitting on it. And so faith is very simple. We exercise faith all the time. We exercise faith when we get in our car that it's going to start. We exercise faith on the highway when we're driving that the guy in the next lane is not going to come over and smash us into the wall. Of course, these things fail us. God doesn't fail us. Uh, So we have to be careful how far we push these things. But we exercise faith all the time. And so I'm exercising faith right now in the chair that I'm sitting in. That's the object of my faith. So faith always demands an object. Uh, I said earlier that faith is always exercised with a view to a benefit. Well, what's the benefit? The benefit is I get to relax. Uh, I don't have to stand on my feet and uh, let my legs get weary from standing for too long or my feet hurt. Uh, So the benefit for me is I'm exercising faith. Uh, the, The object of my faith is the chair. The benefit is I get to relax And by the way, I don't get any credit for this. I get the benefit, but the chair does all the support. The chair is what holds me up. So so the chair gets all the credit, you see. So those three things are always true when you're thinking about faith that is exercise. Faith is exercise. It demands an object. It is exercise with a view to a benefit. And the object gets the credit. And so those three things are generally true whenever you're thinking about faith as a verb. Now, the word is used of trust in God. Hebrews 11:6 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe, there's pistuo, must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Um. And then also Romans 4, 3, for what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, that is, he believed him at his word, he believed him at his, at his promise, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So you notice here that the word is used of trust in God, of believing that he exists and trusting him at his promise. It's, it's very straightforward here. Uh, the word is used with regard to Jesus, Acts 16.31, where uh, the Philippian jailer 
uh, in the previous verse, he's talking to Paul and Silas, and he said to them, Sirs, uh, being very polite here, it's always good manners, right? Uh, what must I do to be saved? And uh, they said to him, Believe. Well, there's, our, there's the use of our verb, pastuo. Pastusin epiton kurion yesun, kaisotesesu, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And Lord there is a synonym for deity. It's a synonym for his deity. It's emphasizing the fact that he is God. So believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. 1 Peter 1.8, it says, And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe, there's our verb pastuo, believe in him. So Christ there is the object. So it's used of trust in God. It's used of trust in Jesus. It's also used of trust in Scripture. I love John 2.22. And it says, So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed what? They believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So there's the use of our verb pastuo. But notice what the object is. The object of their faith is the Scripture. And so the word is used of faith in God, faith in Jesus, faith in the Scripture. And according to uh, J. Carl Laney, and here I'm citing him from Understanding Christian Theology, page 240, he says, quote, Believing in Christ means that we acknowledge him as God's Son and Messiah and trust his person and work in securing our personal salvation. Believing in Christ means that we rely on Jesus alone to bring us safely through to heaven, end quote. So I, I, I think that's correct there, because when we think about salvation, there's only one, way to, uh, only one way to the Father, only one way to heaven, and that is exclusively through Jesus Christ, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man, no person comes to the Father but through me. So uh, to get to the Father so that he becomes Father uh, is through Christ. And that means that we trust in Christ and Christ alone. We do not trust in ourselves. We do not trust in any system of works. Uh, we do not trust in anyone or anything other than Christ. And so we trust in him and him alone to do for us that which we cannot do for ourselves, that is to save us. Uh, so there we see the use of faith as a verb. Then we have faith as an adjective. Faith as an adjective. Now that translates the Greek word pistos. Pistos. Uh, and here I'm quoting from Badag, which uh, here is a, taken from page 820. And pistos here uh, describes someone, quote, being worthy of belief or trust, trustworthy, faithful, dependable, uh, inspiring trust or faith, end quote. And so there's a number of passages that uh, show the use of the adjective here. For example, 1 Corinthians 1.9, it says God is what? Well, he is pistos, he is faithful. And so here it's translated as faithful. And here again, we look at the object. What is it or who is it that we are trusting in? In this case, it is God who is said to be faithful. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. 
And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. 2 Timothy 2.13, it says, If we are faithless, are we? Yes, we are. We are not always faithful to God. We fail. We fail to live by faith. But guess what the scripture says? It says, if we are faithless, he remains what? Faithful. And why does he remain faithful? Because we're sweet and lovely and wonderful and charming. We were not, are not, and will not be. He remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. That's another one of those cannot passages. He cannot deny himself. You see, God made a promise. He said, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. If God leaves you or forsakes you, you know what that makes God? It makes God a liar. And remember Hebrews 6.18 and Titus 1.2. It's not in the notes. I'm just giving it to you off the top of my head. But both those passages make it very clear that it is impossible for God to lie. And so he remains faithful to us, even though we are faithless, and we are, uh, he remains faithful, uh, for he cannot deny himself. You see, God has a promise, and God is bound. He binds himself to his word, such that when he makes a promise, he cannot do otherwise. Uh, so he remains faithful. Revelation 1.5, talking about Jesus Christ. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Notice there's that use of our adjective there on faithful, pistos, of the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. Now, the word is also used of people. Some people are described as faithful. By the way, this is, this is true in everyday life. There's some people uh, in my life, be it family or co-workers or neighbors, there are some people that I trust and there's just some people that I just don't trust because they're not faithful. And so Matthew 25, 23, uh, it says here, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. Uh, And so this was a servant here who is described as faithful. 1 Corinthians 4, 17. Paul says, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. You see, Paul could send Timothy on this mission and trust that Timothy would do the job and would do it well because Timothy is described here as faithful. Colossians 1.7 Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. Notice he is faithful. And this speaks of a level of maturity that the believer grows into uh, to where they can bear this title. They can be called faithful. Um, and so we think of 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me, notice, faithful, putting me into service. And, uh, and so Paul here uh, takes it as a tremendous compliment and as a, as a responsibility, by the way. The fact that he's called by the Lord means that he understands the calling and he takes it very seriously. He doesn't want to let the Lord down. And so he's, uh, he takes this very seriously. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, 2, these things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, that is, these doctrines these things that you have learned in God's word, entrust these to faithful men 
who will be able to teach others also. Entrust these, that is, entrust these things that you have heard, these doctrines that you have learned uh, from me, Paul says. And, and you've heard them uh, in the presence of many witnesses. So this, is, this was things that he had spoken of publicly. And he says, take that doctrine, those things that you learned, that divine viewpoint, and do what? Entrust these, that is, these doctrines, uh, this divine viewpoint revelation to who? To faithful men, uh, talking about Bible teachers, who will, be able to, who, will, who will be able to teach others also. And so this verse was brought up to me one time uh, in a seminary context when I was working on my doctorate, uh, and I was close to being finished. Uh, but a man brought this verse to my attention, and he said, he said, you have a responsibility as somebody who has learned the doctrines to be faithful, to be faithful to teach these things to others also. And, and it spoke to me on a very personal level, and I thought, you know, that's right. And I take that very seriously, and so it's one of the reasons why you spend a, a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of resources, a lot of money uh, to purchase uh, your education, to get a good education from, from good schools, to, to buy lots of books, uh, to make sure that you have a library that consists of thousands of works that you can research uh, with academic journal articles, really top-notch stuff, but you're really going to have to invest yourself in that. And that takes a lot of time. But again, you want to be faithful. You want to be counted among those who are faithful uh, to teach others also. And uh, as, a, as, a, as a Bible teacher, I've made the comment many times that I'm responsible for output, but not outcomes. You see, I'm responsible for output to make sure that what I communicate is biblically accurate and to communicate it as clearly and as simply as I can. Now, what you do with it, well, that's between you and God. And I'm not here to follow you around. I don't mind you, any of your business. I'm not, I'm not looking into your life. It's your life. I have to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. I don't have enough time to work out your salvation. I wouldn't want to if I, if I was given the opportunity. Okay, uh, so when I teach something, I just simply put it out there. What people do with it, that's between them and the Lord. And uh, either you're going to be that believer who takes in divine viewpoint and applies it, you're going to be the wise believer, the one that Jesus commends, or you're going to be the foolish believer, the one who takes it in and doesn't apply it, the one that James is speaking to in James 1.22 and James 4.17. Uh, and so, you know, that becomes one of those things where each believer has to, has to work out their own stuff. They're not working for their salvation. This is not a works-based salvation. But they have to, they're not working for it, but they have to work it out, you see. Uh, but uh, again, these things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these to faithful men, that is, to men who are going to be faithful to the task, who are going to be committed long-term uh, to teaching, to studying and to teaching, uh, others so that they will learn. And then Hebrews 3, 5, we see another example of this where it says, now Moses was faithful. So here we have Pistos again. He was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But again, we're just simply looking at the word in, in its various contexts. So we looked at faith as a noun, faith as a verb, faith as an adjective. Now, as I mentioned earlier, and I like to bring it down to a very simple understanding, and I like repetition, because repetition, I think, drives it into our, into our thinking. Uh, so I highlighted these, uh, the three points that I mentioned earlier. And the first one is, is that faith demands an object. 
Again, when we think of faith, when we think of it in the verb form, we think of it in a, in a transitive sense of taking, of demanding a direct object. It has to have someone or something to rest in. And so faith demands an object in every form. Anytime faith is exercised, whether, whether it's you putting yourself into a chair or whether you putting your trust in Christ as Savior, uh, it's just simply the object uh, that must exist. And I, and I see these bumper stickers and these shirts and people who make comments, they say, oh, just believe. And I just, I just scratch my head and I think, believe what? What is it that, you, you know, just believe, what are you talking about? Because there's no context. They just throw the statement out there as though somehow it stands on its own, and it doesn't. It's not even grammatically correct. Anyway, uh, so faith demands an object, as it must have something or someone upon which to rest. Now, to receive salvation, you see, the unbeliever is told in Acts 16.31 to believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Uh, now, I published an article. I've been working on it for the last two weeks, and I, I published it this morning on my blog. And I just simply titled it, Faith Alone, uh, uh, Salvation is by Grace Alone through Faith Alone in Christ Alone. I'll, I'll send it out in the email when I send out this, this audio once I get it edited and, and up, uploaded later to the podcast. But it's just simply, look, salvation is by grace alone. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's unmerited. It's not, look, look, anybody can come up with a plan whereby, uh, by good works, they bring themselves to God. That's called religion. Religion is man by man's efforts trying to win the approval of God. Now, any, anybody can come up with that. Uh, but it, only God came up with a plan uh, whereby he can bring us to himself, uh, and this by grace, you see, and, and apart from works. And so, for by grace you have been saved. And listen, you need, if, if you're wrestling with it, read Ephesians 2, 8, 9 about 50 times. And really, just, just think through it. For by grace, unmerited favor, us. For by grace, unmerited, undeserved favor. Okay? For by grace are you saved. Through faith. Now, faith doesn't save you. Christ saves you. But faith is merely the hand that, that, that reaches out and welcomes that. It's the, it's the, it's the mental... Uh, activity whereby we simply trust in him. And so faith is the open hands, as it were, to use a metaphor, that receives that salvation. But it's all of God and none of us. Salvation is of the Lord. Titus 3.5 says, he saved us, not we saved ourselves, not we participated. It's he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by means of the Holy Spirit. Again, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. That not of yourselves. Underscore that, highlight that, put little asterisks around it. That not of yourselves. It, that is salvation, is the gift of God. Now listen, if it's a gift, it means it was paid in full by another person. If you have to work for it at all, it's not a gift. It means you bought it, or you, or you, helped, you helped pay for it. But that's not what salvation is. Salvation is a gift. It is a gift paid in full by the Lord Jesus Christ and given to us freely. No strings attached. 
Okay, so by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, not of works. Underscore that, highlight that, circle that, little asterisks around it, okay? Not of works, lest any man should boast. And so that is how we are saved. Very straightforward. But we just simply believe, and what is the object of our faith? That's Jesus. We believe in the Lord Jesus, and Paul says, and you will be saved. Now, for the unbeliever... Faith is in, in Christ is exercised with a view to receiving a benefit. Remember, see, I mentioned the three things. That faith demands an object. Faith is exercised with a view to receiving a benefit. And the object gets all the credit. Remember that? Well, that's the same thing here. So faith demands an object. What's the object of our faith? Jesus Christ. We trust in him and him alone. What is the benefit that we get? For the unbeliever, faith in Christ is exercised with a view to receiving a benefit. What's the benefit? The benefit is eternal life. The benefit is eternal life. You see, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes, what? In him shall not perish, but have, and what will we have? Eternal life. You see, so that's the benefit. So the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. What's the benefit? Eternal life. That's a good deal, isn't it? I mean, that's, a, that's a pretty sweet deal. You get eternal life. It means you're not going to go to the lake of fire. So you're spared. You, you're not going to go. That's good news. I'm, I'm very happy with that. That's a wonderful benefit. So the benefit is eternal life. Now, faith does not save. Let's be clear. We want to be very clear on this. Faith does not save. God saves. Faith is merely the means by which the unsaved person receives salvation as God alone does the saving. Now, though we may exercise faith and receive a benefit, again, the object gets all the credit. So here, see, there's point number three. So just to kind of recap again, faith demands an object. Uh, faith is exercised with a, with a view to receiving a benefit. Who's the object? Jesus Christ. What's the benefit? Eternal life. And who gets all the credit? The Lord does, not us, right? So God saves. So faith is merely a means by which, we, by which the unsaved person receives salvation as God alone does the saving. And though we exercise faith and receive a benefit, the object always gets the credit. In other words, he gets all the glory. We get the benefit. He gets all the glory. He paid the price. We don't pay anything. We just simply come with the empty hands of faith. We trust in Christ and Christ alone. We get a wonderful benefit. We get eternal life. But he gets all the glory because he's the one who saves. So the object gets all, of our, of all, gets all the credit. And in the case of our salvation, God alone gets the glory. And so... Do we have anything to boast about? No. Zero. Nada. Zilch. Nothing. Okay? Because it is not of works. Not of works. Not of works, lest any man should boast. If you boast, that means you're taking some of the glory. And I remember uh, Sherry and I were talking about it the other day because I remember uh, thinking about the three G's. When you're going into ministry, there, there's, th there's three things you don't touch. Uh, you don't touch the glory. That is God's glory. Don't, don't ever try to steal God's glory. No, no, that's bad. You'll, you'll, yeah, God doesn't share his glory with anybody, okay? You, you don't touch the glory. The second thing is you don't touch the gold. 
Keep your hands off. I remember when I pastored a church some years ago, uh, you know, we had secretaries, we had trustworthy people handling the fine. I didn't want to know. I didn't want to touch it. I didn't want to know. I didn't want to know who was the big giver because you're always tempted to sometimes tailor your, your messages. Listen, we're human. We're, we're vulnerable that way. And I, you don't touch the gold. And the third thing you don't touch is the girls. So you keep your head. You don't touch the glory. You don't touch the gold. And you don't touch the girls. Okay, and so you, those are the three G's that'll, that will save your bacon uh, when you get into ministry, okay? Uh, but listen, if you try to add works to your salvation, you know what you're doing? You're stealing the glory of God. You're trying to take some glory for yourself. No, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Take the benefit. Enjoy it. It's a gift paid in full. The Lord Jesus Christ paid for it in full at the cross. But uh, listen, all the glory belongs to God. He gets all the glory. He saves, okay? Uh, so God alone gets the glory, and faith is never blind. You know, people talk about a you know a faith is like this leap into the dark. And that's, that's that's wrong too. That's a no. And listen, I used to think that way. I mean, you caught me thirty years ago. I'd have probably said something like that until I was straightened out. Word, the word of God does that. It tends to straighten us out, doesn't? Or maybe I'm just talking about myself. Uh, but faith is never va- never blind, but is an intelligent act of the will by the believer who understands God's word. Again, I think of Romans 10, 17, where it says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. You take it in, you hear it, you learn it. And, uh, and so this takes time. James 1, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Now, I have a quote here from Charles Swindoll. I like Swindoll. He's a good teacher. And this is taken from his uh, commentary on Acts, uh, Living Insights, New Testament Commentary, page 147. He says, quote, to believe in Christ is first to accept what he says as truth. You see, now let me pause there. He's talking about content. You see, faith demands an object. Here, it's the content. It's the truth of what he says. So he says, to believe in Christ is first to accept what he says is truth. Second, and more importantly, pastuo means to trust, to rely upon, or to derive confidence in something or someone. When I say, he says, when I say I believe in Jesus Christ, I declare that I trust him, I rely upon him, I have placed my complete confidence in him, everything I know about this life and whatever occurs after death depends upon his claims about himself and my positive response to his offer of grace, end quote. And, and I like that. John Wolvert, another Bible teacher that is a, a very good teacher. I had the privilege of meeting him back in 1994, I think it was. He came and did a, a three-day a series of lectures at a church in, in Lubbock. Anyway, he says, quote, Faith is illustrated by the use of an elevator. A person may believe that the elevator is in good working order and would take him to the top floor of the building if he chose to get on board. But as long as he is outside the elevator, his belief that the elevator would take him to the top floor does not do him any good. Faith would mean that he stepped in the elevator and put his weight into it and committed himself to its mechanical perfections. Likewise, there is more than mere assent in the matter of believing in Christ, end quote. Now, I think that salvation begins with mental assent because you must have some content. You must have some content. And as I've said before, the gospel is the solution to a problem. 
Because if I come along and I give the gospel, if I give gospel content that Christ died for our sins, was buried and raised again on the third day, and whoever believes in him will have eternal life, and they say, well, why should I believe in him? Why did he die? What's all that about? But if you understand that the gospel is the solution to a problem, and you explain that the problem is, well, there's at least two aspects to it. One, that God is holy, and that he can only do one thing with sin, and that is to condemn it. And the second part is that we are sinners in Adam by nature and by choice, and we are apt to produce sin, but we cannot deal with sin, and so we cannot save ourselves. So here you have a holy and righteous God who can only condemn sin. We are these mass producers of sin. Uh, Well, that puts us in a bad spot. And so when we understand that Christ is the solution to the problem in the sense that he atoned for our sins— that he satisfied God's righteous demands concerning our sins because he was judged at the cross, then all of a sudden we understand why the gospel is so important, because we have context. So you have to have some assent. You must assent to the truth about God, his nature, the fallenness of mankind. And once you understand those things, then all of a sudden the gospel makes sense. Because if you're not a sinner, well, then you don't need a Savior. You see? Well, why are you a sinner? Because a righteous and holy God exists, and he, he calls you that, and he says, look, you're in trouble. So you have to accept the divine estimation of who you are. And that means accepting the fact that God exists, that he has spoken, what he has spoken is true, and you're in hot water. And you're damned for the lake of fire for all eternity unless you accept his provision of salvation. That's Jesus. That's good news. Oh, there's a way? Oh, I can't do it. I'm in terrible trouble. Wait, what, what, wait a minute. You're telling me that there's a way for me to avoid all this lake of fire nonsense? I'm all about that. What, what is it? Talk to me. Talk to me. Well, that's Jesus Christ. He died upon a cross. He bore your sin upon the cross. And God judged him as though that was you there on the cross. You see, he died in your place. He took the hit for you. Okay, And he suffered upon the cross and bore the wrath of God. And if you will turn to Christ and Christ alone, you will have forgiveness of sins. You will have eternal life. You will have the gift of righteousness and you will be adopted into the family of God. You will go from being part of Satan's domain of darkness to, uh, to the kingdom of the beloved son. You will become brothers and sisters to the king of kings and lord of lords. You'll be part of the royal family of God. Isn't that wonderful? That's good news. That's good news. But you must assent to the truth regarding who God is, his character, his estimation of who you are as a dirty, rotten, low-down sinner who's in some serious hot water. I'm I'm speaking very simply here, so if there's any kids listening, they'll get it. Uh, But you understand that. So the gospel then becomes the solution to a problem. But you must assent to the truth and say, yes, that is true, and then turn to Christ and Christ alone then you must place your faith actually in him. Because it's not just enough to know that God exists. We must also move into that realm where we accept the estimation of who we are from the divine perspective and then accept his solution to the problem of sin because we, in and of ourselves, have no solution. Well, I'm going over a little bit, so let me finish out this last section here. Now, as Christians... Uh, after salvation, we enter into phase two of the Christian life. Now, we're going to spend a couple nights, I suspect, uh, uh, maybe two or three or four. I'm not sure how long. I can get a little long-winded on occasion, but that's all right. Uh, But we're going to talk about phase two of the Christian life and the spiritual life. But as Christians, when we enter into phase two of our salvation, we learn to live by faith. God says in Hebrews 10, 38, My righteous one shall live by faith. 
We learn to submit to God, Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, uh, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So we learn to submit ourselves to God as Christians. We learn to claim promises. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You see, I live by Romans 8, 28 daily. I think of that verse. I think of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. See, now we're talking about the faithfulness of God again. He is faithful to do what? And he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. I have to confess my sin multiple times a day. And if speeding is a sin, well, then I have to confess it 15 times a day because I'm usually driving about five miles an hour over the speed limit everywhere I go. So I'm constantly in trouble. I have to confess my sins a lot these days. Uh, but we claim promises. We give our cares to God, 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Uh, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Notice, and this is a faith response, casting all of your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. That's a faith response. Casting all of your care upon him. Do you have cares? I know you do. Welcome to the human race. You've got cares. It's a question of degree. What do you do with those cares? Do you walk around and bear them all the time by yourself? That's a sad state to be in. I've been in that spot. I'm telling you, it's a terrible place to be. Cast your cares upon the Lord. Five minutes later, Satan wants to put them back into your brain and dump them back on you, and you just need to turn back around and cast them back upon the Lord. And it's called discipline of mind. So we we give our cares to God. We overcome fear. Uh, We learn to love others. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. That's a faith response too, by the way. We are learned, we are told to rejoice, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Rejoice always, verse 17. Pray without ceasing, verse 18. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You know, there's a few passages in the Bible that flat out say, this is the will of God for you. And this is one of those passages, and it's rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. We are told to live with a relaxed mental attitude. Isaiah 26, 3, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Like the way the King James puts it, the mind that is stayed upon thee shall be kept in perfect peace because he trusts in thee. You see, it's a faith response. You're trusting in the Lord. Now, if your mind is anywhere and everywhere other than God, you have no peace because you forfeited that. But when your mind is upon the Lord, and you know what I'm talking about, you've been in those situations, you have that peace. Philippians 4.11, Paul says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. And by the way, being content is a learned activity. He says, I have learned to be content. He had to learn this thing. It didn't just come. You're not just born in this world uh, contented. No, no, it's not the way it goes. You have to learn it. So again, these are functions of the Christian life. Biblically, we know that faith is tested. We know that it is the only thing that pleases God. Hebrews eleven six says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And then we circle back to our starting verse here, uh, that as Christians we are uh, told daily uh, that our function is that we walk by faith and not by sight. So you see, faith is very relevant not only to our entrance into 
the relationship with God, but to our daily walk with the Lord. You see, so you start by faith. As you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, so walk in him. As you receive, how did you receive him? You received him by faith. How do you walk? You walk by faith, you see. So this has not only soteriological significance, which is our current study, but it also has application in phase two of the Christian life, which is our walk with the Lord. All right, that is going to close out this lesson. I went five minutes over. You all have to forgive me for that. Uh, Let me go ahead and put a stop on this here. Do we have any questions over tonight's lesson? Any questions over tonight's lesson? Nothing online yet. Okay. All right, any questions from anybody online, anybody in the room? Stephanie, go ahead. Get get the party started, Stephanie. Go ahead. Well, I had a lot of thoughts, and I thought this was really, really great, so thank you. Um, Thank you so much. So, you know, there was was a lot of things that I put here. Um, So you had said about uh, faith is something that grows. I mean, obviously, yeah, that that have a choice whether it grows or not, you know. Right. Faith is something that grows, something that I think about every day. Um, as my walk with the Lord, uh, do you remember that passage in Matthew about the dad that brings his son to Jesus? Matthew 8, yes. Right, and he says, um, I believe, help my unbelief. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's something that I remind myself of and I think about all the time because it's like he had something to bring his son to Jesus. But he also acknowledged that I'm not fully there yet. It, it, right. it, to me, that sounds like a faith that's growing. I do believe, but help my unbelief. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm weak in my faith, but the, that faith can be strengthened. I used to talk with the guys when I used to teach classes at the Lubbock County Bible, Ch- Bible uh, excuse me, Lubbock County Jail when I taught Bible classes there. And... Uh, and we used to talk about the faith of a mustard seed. We used to talk about, you know, how much faith does it take to touch the throne room of heaven? Mm-hmm. And in my understanding, as soon as I say, Father, mm-hmm. I'm exercising faith right. because I'm accepting that he is. Mm-hmm. I'm accepting my relationship with him through Christ. Right. And as soon as I say his name, as soon as I address him, I'm exercising faith. Faith doesn't have to be great. Jesus said, look, the faith of a mustard seed, you know, can have a big impact. It doesn't take much, but it takes some faith. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, of course, those who were reprimanded are those who have no faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are those who have little faith, those who grow strong in their faith, like Abraham, those who have great faith. I think of the uh, centurion who came to Jesus and said, hey, look, heal my servant. Uh, Jesus said, I'll come to your house. The centurion said, hey, don't even sweat it. You don't have to come. Don't worry about it. Just say the word, and it's done. And Jesus is like, man, I haven't seen such great faith in, in all Jerusalem and all Israel. You know, it's just like, but that's the kind of faith that speaks of, of a great trust, you know. And uh, it's interesting that the, that the Roman centurion uh, based that on Jesus' authority. 
He said, for I am a man under authority, and I know you have authority, and all I have to do is say something to somebody, and it's done. And I know that you are the authority. And so if you just say something, it's done. And so I love that. I do, too. And I was thinking about this past week, this chaplain and I were having a conversation um, about trust, you know, um, and forgiveness and different, I saw your next section, Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I'm excited. But um, I had wrote some notes down here because, you know, thinking about faith versus trust, you know, I know a lot of people use them interchangeably. They can come hand in hand, but I don't think that they're the exact same thing. Well, it depends on how, what you mean by faith. Faith can be uh, a noun, again, if you're talking about something that you possess. Uh, It can be a quality. Uh, believe and trust mm-hmm. and confidence. Yeah. Uh, I think those are all synonyms. They all relate to each other, but yeah. And what I mean by that is like forgiveness and reconciliation. Okay. Like they go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Like I can forgive someone without trusting them, without having faith in them, but because I can have faith and trust in God who says what forgiveness is, what mm-hmm. I should do, who he is, all those different things. So I can forgive someone without, like you said, the warm and fuzzy feeling, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. But with reconciliation, I, I think that that would take some type of trust, even maybe if it's even just a little bit in a person, while still having full trust in God that that enough to obey Him to attempt to reconcile, you know, reconcile. Well, no, you're that right. I mean, yeah, faith and, I mean, forgiveness and, rec- and you are jumping into next week's I'm lesson, sorry. but that's all right. <laughs> uh, but you're right. I mean, uh, forgiveness and reconciliation, they do go together hand in glove, mm-hmm. but I can forgive somebody that we will never be reconciled. Right. Right. I think of when, and we'll talk about this more next week, because I think that there is a, there is a, um, there is a forgiveness that we extend like a common grace. We just extend it because of who we are and not because of the object, okay? Uh, Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. Well, who's the them? That's those who were crucifying him. Uh, well, they weren't asking for forgiveness. They weren't even seeking it. And yet, the, and yet the heart of Jesus is, Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what it is that they're doing. Uh, you know, and and so... Uh, but then there is the kind of forgiveness that results in a reconciliation and a restoring. And so we'll, we'll unpack that more. Yeah, yeah, no, those do go together. So. And there was um, another thing, you know, which I love that you put in here, that in faith is never blind, but it's an intelligent act of the will by the believer who hears and understands God's word. And then you had brought up James 1.22, to prove yourself doers mm-hmm. of the word and not merely hearers who, who delude themselves. And I was thinking that, you know, that's important because it kind of, that was making me think about God and humanity. You know, the word says that Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in people. That's right, that's right. You know, but we, God has proven himself. He doesn't have to, but he's proven himself over and over and over again. But this, it says, prove yourself. Like, people, humanity, you have to prove yourself viewers. No, that's exactly right. Um, what's in you. <laughs> right, right, because because we are weak, yeah. and because we are prone to failures and unbelief. No, that's right. And I think um, that just that, that trust and faith, and I won't talk about it too much, but the, the forgiveness and reconciliation, <laughs> I think it's important, at least in, in for me and my walk, I can't speak to anybody else, but it, it's come to a place in my life that it's been this way for years that 
the more that you grow in faith and the more that you trust the Lord because he has proven himself and who he is and he's he's never changing. He's always the same. He's mm-hmm. not a liar. Like you said, he's right. not a liar. That even if I'm dealing with those I can't trust or I can't have faith in and who don't prove themselves or prove themselves liars or herders or deceivers or whatever, that I can exercise and obey the commands of God to forgive, to love, to attempt to reconcile because of who he is, because he's proven himself faithful, and I can trust. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even if I can't trust in people, um, and and I do have that issue <laughs> very deeply. <laughs> right, and, and you can't, and, and you can't, how can I say it without, you, 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 it's unavoidable. Right. Uh, uh, let me say this quickly. Um, I think of in Timothy where Paul tells Timothy, uh, he says, look, come to me, you know, bring the parchments, bring my cloak, you know, bring some of but, but when he tells Timothy to come to him, uh, Paul imagines the route uh, through the city that Timothy may take. And he warns Timothy. And he says, um, be on the watch out, be on the watch, be on the lookout for this man uh, named Alexander, and because that was a common name, he listed his profession, Alexander the coppersmith. He says, for he opposed our teaching and did me much harm. Okay, now I find that very intriguing because I can't imagine that Paul harbored any hatred towards the man, even though the mentioning of his name made Paul speak and say or write and say he did me much harm. I imagine that Paul was hurt, and he carried that hurt with him, and he remembered the hurt, and he said, oh, I don't want my friend Timothy to run into this guy. He's a rascal. And so he tells him to watch out for Alexander, the coppersmith. That's wisdom. Now, there's no hatred there. And I think it demonstrates the point that you can have forgiveness. You can have no hatred in your heart, and yet still not be reconciled, because he and Alexander, they they hadn't come together. Alexander hated him, and it hurt him. And was a mean, mean man. Yeah. And so I, I think that, that that kind of plays into, you know, as, a, as an issue really that. Nancy, you had a comment. Well, um, also, whenever someone has wronged you, mm-hmm. building trust again is very difficult, even though you might forgive no, that's exactly right. If somebody has wronged you, building trust is difficult even though you have forgiven them. Right. That's correct. That's, that's correct. Yeah. Uh, I have people that, um, I had a boss years ago, and she was the most controlling, manipulative, toxic, bully personality I think I've ever run into. Lie, manipulate, and she was just a, a destroyer of lives. Anybody that that came into contact with, she was just a vicious, vicious person. Uh, but even though I had some bad dealings with her, and she had she had mistreated me quite quite severely, I still had to respect her position, and I chose to treat her in kindness. Now our relationship never got back to what it was. It never got back to that original relationship where there was a lot of trust, and I have forgiven her. And I've actually prayed for her, and I've actually pr- prayed for the Lord to bless her. I, I, have, I harbor no, no hatred towards her, but I don't trust her. I see nothing in her that has changed, and I'm not, I'm not going to reach out and grab hold of the fire. It would be foolish to 
it was a point. And so there's a point there where, where again, but this goes back to our study tonight, that when you look at the adjective pistos, for example, some people are trustworthy and some people are not. So it gets back. So even this issue plays into this issue of relationships and it plays into the issue of forgiveness. And it's kind of like when I think about forgiveness, I think about relationships, but I think about concentric circles. There are people that are at the very core of my relationship, my immediate relationship. But then there's people that are in concentric circles, be they friends, be they coworkers, be they strangers, be they whoever. But you think in terms of those relationships and those concentric circles, um, you know, as to how closely someone can be to you. But you're right. I mean, it is it is difficult to trust once you've been hurt like that. That makes me think yeah. because she hasn't proven herself to mm-hmm. be delusional Trust right. I'm not. I'm not going to blindly walk into that relationship yeah. again. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I, I learned a lot of lessons from that uh, experience, and it was quite painful. And I licked my wounds and moved on. But uh, anyway, anybody online have any questions or comments? Nobody. Okay. All right. Well, why don't we wrap it up with a word of prayer, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can take this time to discuss this subject of faith, belief, that we can look at these various areas in the scripture where these words are used and to help us to understand uh, faith in a soteriological sense as it relates to our salvation, but then also to understand it as part of phase two of the Christian life, uh, which has to do with our walk with you, Father. Father, we just pray this evening that this time of study will be fruitful, that we will gain understanding, and that we will be able to take the truths that we've learned to be able to apply them to our lives and grow thereby. Father, we thank you. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. Yeah. Do you have last week's notes?